Praise God. Let's go ahead and find our seats and get ready to get into the scriptures together today. Got to find my notes. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your grace in our lives. We thank you for the ability to come together as brothers and sisters and commune with your Holy Spirit. Experience the joy of worshiping you. Thank you, Father, for depositing things in our hearts today that truly will be good fruit into a world in need, tasting something that's beyond what this life has to offer. Thank you, Father, for your peace being established in us and through us by your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you're the great teacher. Lead us and guide us into all truth as we look at your scriptures today, as we listen to your word. May all things that we reflect on and speak about during these moments together bring honor and glory to the name that's above every name, the name of Jesus. And the church said, Amen. 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 Well, if you were with us on Wednesday night, uh, this is actually a more organized, put together version of what I was going to do Wednesday. Uh, so I've got it actually the way I want it, and I'm doing it for you guys on Sunday. So if you were there Wednesday, today's going to be the better version. If you weren't there Wednesday, you're going to get the best. So it works out good for everybody. It's going to be awesome. Uh, man, I just uh, have had some things stirring in my heart concerning first love and us taking a look at the Scripture, what that means. And there's so many things in our life that are pressing and have priority and so many things we're trying to accomplish in our weeks and our days, our minutes and our hours. And I think that the Lord would speak something to us today about before we do anything else, we need to stop and pay attention to God's love and what that love means and how we connect to it and embrace it in our lives. And if you're anything like me, it's easy to go to church and read your Bible and in some way, shape and form, find all the things in your life that you're failing at in regards to following Jesus. Anybody ever read the scripture or heard a message and just been overwhelmed based upon the truth that was presented and taking a look at your life, seeing very painfully obvious how you're missing the mark in that particular area? I don't think you could go through If you're like me, I've got five kids, five and under at the house, and there's no way I could go through that parenting series that pastor's done for us and not been convicted uh, every single time, yeah, deal with me before I deal with you. Anybody ever messed that one up before in regards to raising kids? And, you know, it's impossible to go to church, read the Bible, listen to the teachings of Jesus, the teaching of the apostles, and pay attention to the teaching of spiritual leaders in your life today and not become aware of the areas that you're not measuring up in. And I think if you're also anything like me and I become painfully obvious of the areas that I'm not doing so great. And I like to run to little phrases, little things I've picked up over my Christian life that, you know, are good stuff that you stick on your refrigerator or something that you heard a pastor say that makes you feel good. And when I am just in a place of discomfort or the Lord's revealing to me by His truth an area where I'm missing the mark, I like to run to those things that make me feel good. Anybody like you or anybody like me and can connect with that and... If you're here today, hopefully you can connect with at least something that I'm saying in regards to, to that. And 
man, two phrases that stuck out to me as I was preparing the message. And I'm not saying I have anything against these phrases. I think that they're good phrases. And when we actually look at them with wisdom and we pay attention to the heart of what they're communicating, they're awesome. And they can be life-changing, especially for people that have grown up under the oppression of dead religion. But as a pastor, I get to work with people day in and day out. And I've seen where these phrases in other people's lives and in my life have not necessarily played out correctly in terms of the actual practice of godliness in my life. So you hear something from Jesus like, love your enemies. How many of you have ever struggled with that before? Okay, You hear something from Jesus like, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Sounds painful, doesn't it? I haven't seen that one on anybody's refrigerator before. Uh, Other thing like, don't worry about... Jesus just isn't talking to us in the scriptures about sin not showing up in our behavior. He goes so far as to say that we're not even supposed to let the temptation to sin come into our heart. How many of you saved and filled with the Holy Spirit have still had the temptation to sin come in your heart before? Okay, so like there's these things and I'm referring to Jesus talking about adultery. And he says adultery is wrong, but if you really want to be honest, he said if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Adultery. It's like, okay, the bar goes a little bit higher. So it's easy to pay attention to what Jesus says, if you actually do. It's easy to read the Bible, if you actually do. It's easy to pay attention to what the preacher says and feel discouraged sometimes, feel like you're missing the mark. How many of you kind of can agree with me on this, that Pastor Dwayne given those I promise statements as a parent? I promise to do this or I promise not to do this. Anybody but me broke every single one of those at some point. In their parenting, yeah. It's easy to feel that gap, feel that pressure, feel that sense of, man, I know I'm called to good works. And that's where this, these phrases come from that we sometimes seek comfort in. And the first one is this, you know it, and you've heard it preached before, and I've probably preached it to you, but it's this. It's, when it comes to God, it's not about rules, it's about relationship. And that's a, that's a truth, is it not, that it is about relationship, but how many of you know that that phrase, not looked at in terms of wisdom, not looked at in terms of a phrase I'm going to use today called responsible grace, I don't know if you've figured this out or not, but the church world at large today, because of the culture, is filled with an irresponsible grace teaching. Irresponsible grace looks at, it's all about relationship and not rules, and says, the rules don't matter. Jesus has paid for everything and I've been given a credit card with an unlimited, uh, unlimited charge amount and what I charge on it is sin. My sin doesn't matter. God's already taken care of it so grace has freed me from that. Uh, another phrase that I don't think we mean for it to produce this mindset in our lives but a lot of people I've counseled and pastored, they've got an irresponsible grace theology based upon a phrase like this that, well, I was never going to be perfect And I never will be perfect, so Jesus came so that I don't have to be. It's an amen. I mean, in a grace church, we should get an amen for that. How many of you know that you keeping all the rules isn't going to get you saved or atone for your sin? And you being perfected in and of yourself is not going to atone for your sin or get you saved. But the problem I have with phrases like this, when it actually works out into our practical application of the Word of God... Is that, yeah, at face value, it is about relationship. And if you got dead works and no relationship with God, that's a problem. And if you got all works and 
and, and no connectivity with the Spirit or, or vice versa and in regards to perfection. You know, I get that, that we need to take off the pressure of feeling like we have to perfectly perform. Grace has made allowances for things. But then I wrestle when I read the Bible when, Je- when Jesus says things like, be perfect as your heavenly Father's perfect. When I read things like Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, it says that there's this more excellent way, and it's the way of perfect love. There's that perfect phrase. But I thought it didn't have to be perfect if, and I couldn't be perfect, so Jesus came so I didn't have to be perfect, and then I read the Bible and it tells me to be perfect. And to pursue perfect love. Man, this is confusing. There's this tension that happens in our lives. Then we can feel like, well, if the Bible said I'm not doing it, I'm definitely missing the mark. And I have to go and we have to discern and we have to look and see. In the same way, we can't take a statement like it's all about rules and not relationship. And that means now that the rules don't matter and I just live for whatever I want and whatever I want and apply irresponsible grace. I got to use wisdom. The same thing's true when I look at the scriptures telling us to be perfect and Paul telling us to pursue perfect love. When you go and you actually study that out, that word perfection in the Greek actually means maturity. That we're supposed to grow in this maturity. If you love Jesus and you're in relationship with Him, then I believe that you really want to grow in what it means to follow God. I I believe that you really do want to see God's works showing up in your life. How many of you want to have a life that's abounding in fruitful works? You want to be able for people to see the love and the life of God demonstrated through your heart. You don't want it to be all talk. You want people to see by the way you live that you really are following God. Jesus, and that's why when we look at statements like it's all about relationship, rules don't, it's not about rules, in immaturity people can take that as, well, the rules don't matter. In immaturity people can say, well, I'll never be perfect, so why should I try? When at the end of the day, the scripture is telling us about a grace, and responsible grace sees our lives, and looking at it through a scriptural understanding of responsible grace we see that grace isn't just the thing that's saved us. Grace is also the thing that empowers us to live out our salvation each and every day. That you're not just saved from something, you're actually saved for something. Jesus didn't die on the cross just to get you saved from hell. He also died on the cross to empower you to release heaven onto this earth. And there's this relationship that He's called us to that, yes, relationship with God is primary But a healthy relationship with God will always look like good fruit coming out of your life. People say, well, my marriage with my wife is healthy. And the way I would really assess if your marriage was healthy is the first thing that we would talk about. The way I assess any relationship to see if it's healthy is we'd start talking about boundaries. That's the first thing I would talk about. How many of you know that you don't have a healthy marriage if husbands, you have no boundary on how you talk to your spouse? You just talk to her however you want. How many of you know that you're going to have some unhealth in your marriage? What about in terms of intimacy and you both sharing a marriage bed? If you had an open marriage where anybody was invited into the marriage bed, how many of you know that I'd probably look at it and others would look at it and say, I'm not sure if your marriage is healthy. You've got one. I just don't know if it's healthy. Are you following me? Well, I don't know if my parenting's healthy. Well, what's your boundaries? How are you choosing? Are you Letting that be a governing dynamic in your life with your kids. That you really are purpose in your heart to deal with yourself before you deal with them. You might have kids in a parent relationship with your child. But we discern whether or not it was healthy if we looked at 
the rules that are in place, the boundaries, the way that that relationship actually plays out. We look for the fruit is what we'd look at and see. And all of us are producing fruit, every single one of us. And the scripture really talks about two types of fruit and one's bad fruit and one's good fruit. And you don't know whether it's good or it's bad until somebody takes a bite of it. And we're going to talk about some of that. And I know with me, any time that I've discerned there's bad fruit in my life or I'm failing in an area and I'm not living the way that God wants me to live or I'm not connecting with my spouse the way I should or with my kids, failure has this funny way of really producing two things in us. And the first thing that failure will produce in us is that we'll want to do something in our own willpower to try to fix it because nobody likes failure. And the way we go about doing this is, if I see an area in my life where I'm constantly struggling in, I'll look at it like I look at a car or any other machine. I say, well, I've got to have a bad part. Something under the hood is not clicking the way it's supposed to. I've got a bad belt, got a rusty gear, I put something wrong in, and people that are following the Lord that see this area of their life that they keep missing the mark on, they'll run to, you know, the religion section of the bookstore, and they'll get the latest and greatest Christian bestseller, or they'll pay money to go to that conference. It's supposed to give me the part I need to be able to make sure that now I'm having efficient, Christ-like productivity in my life. That I'm able to crank out Christ-likeness. I just had this bad part, but through my own self-knowledge, my own ability, or getting a resource from somebody else, I can fix that part, and now I can push out Christ-likeness like nobody's business. So failure a lot of times will drive us to Self-reliance and looking at doing something on our own, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and giving it all we got again. Bless God and we'll fail just like we did the way before. But we'll pull ourselves up by our bootstraps again and we'll give it all we got and then we fail like we did before. And then something's broke so I got to go to the best-selling Christian book to hopefully fix it. Is everybody okay? Another thing failure produces in us is a lot of the time it leads us to want to take comfort and only paying attention to the things we're doing right. So instead of the things focusing on the things we're doing wrong, that's painful. You know what? We just come with this revelation that, you know what? I'm just not gifted to be a merciful person. I'm more of a justice type person and right or wrong and black and white. And you know what? I've just got this holy part of my life before God that's right, as clear as can be. It's good. And I'm just going to put that down on my resume that I'll eventually submit to God the day I stand before him. So you start paying attention to all the things that you do really well. And we kind of avoid the things that we're not so good at. Or we make an excuse for it. And we start building a resume for God that hopefully we'll get a chance to present to him one day. And we'll say, God, look, look at how good I was in these areas of my life. Proof that I've got a healthy relationship with you because I had all this good in my life. And man, both of those options just don't seem to land very well with me because I've got the Holy Ghost. How about you? And that Jesus, Jesus is really who we need to look to. Jesus is who we need to learn from. And Jesus writes this interesting letter. He writes a letter through one of his disciples by the name of John. And John's a prophet. He's a seer. And man, the Roman government and the Jewish religious elite, they got so tired of dealing with John that they actually sentenced him to live on an island all by himself, hoping he would just eventually die of being old. They tried to kill him twice, and he was supernaturally delivered both times, and he was like cockroach. They just couldn't kill him. So they sent him out to this island and they said, man, you're going to live off. We're going to banish you to this island off the coast of Greece. And hopefully John will just die. He'll just fade away and not be a problem. And man, even John on the island is where he wrote the entire book of Revelation and got it back to the churches. And man, it was just an incredible, an incredible thing. And 
Jesus appears to John and he starts telling him to write letters on his behalf to these churches. And he writes a letter to a church that I believe has fallen into the rut that so many of us fall into. We start paying attention to all the things we're doing for God to make ourselves feel good about the things that we're not doing. And we start paying attention to self-help and self-based resources to try to fix things that are broken on the inside of us. And as long as we have more good than bad, we're in right standing with God. And whenever we stand before Jesus, He'll have be merciful on the things we're bad at and the things we're good at. As long as the scales tip this way, we'll be okay. And this just seems to be kind of where the Ephesians are at. And they're church folk. Jesus tells John to write a letter. Let's take a look at it, see if it can help us in regards to understanding how we're going to marry this world between relationship with God and actually having fruitful works in our lives between grace and truth and all these things. And Jesus writes this letter. You can look at it on the screen. I'm going to read it off my phone because this is where my, my notes are. And if I look over there, I'll forget where I am and it'll just be bad. So Revelation chapter 2 verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus writes. Now let me help you with something here. This angel is not, and scholars have searched this out, and, and I agree with the experts, and I, I agree with this statement because it does actually have some personal benefit for me, and you'll laugh when I tell you because sometimes the truth is funny, but to the angel of the church in Ephesus, see, Jesus isn't writing a letter to a literal angel at the church in Ephesus. The angel is the pastor or the overseer of that particular church, and the reason I like it is because I know some people have problem liking me. If you'll just confess and believe that I'm an angel, it'll all be okay and there'll be no problem. So the angel of the church in Ephesus write this. He's writing a letter to a pastor that's for the church. Is everybody good? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And that's just Hebrew symbolism and uh, metaphor to paint a picture of Jesus. Uh, we don't have time to get into what all those things mean. All this is saying is that the letter is stating very clearly that these are the words of Jesus that, sh- that, that are coming to you now. John's saying these aren't my words. These are Christ's words to you. This open vision I've had with the Lord. This is what the Lord's told me and I'm sharing it with you. And Jesus says this. He says, I know your works. Everybody say works. Your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Man, if you're the Ephesian church reading this, man, it's a pat on the back right there. Look at this. We've got wisdom. We're rightfully dividing between true teaching and false teaching. We're being patient. We're doing good works. We're bearing up for Christ's sake. We're enduring persecution and hardship. We're patient as all. Get out. Yeah. Everybody say, go church. That's awesome. We're doing great. And then Jesus has something interesting to say here. He says, but I have this against you. Man, if I was a part of that church, my ears would perk up, right? Have this against you. Jesus, you just said everything that we're doing well and man I thought this was just going to keep rolling you're reading the resume just the way we submitted it look at all the stuff we're doing great we we've got all those measurables on our church staff too we're rocking into salvations we've got the best teaching around blah 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 blah. Jesus you noticed yes we've been doing good Jesus says but 
have something against you. Something's not quite right. There's something about you and mine's relationship that's not healthy. Man. Have this against you. That you've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent. Change the way that you think. And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Change the way that you think. Man, heavy words from Jesus, but he's Jesus, so we'll let him get away with it. I'm just glad he said it, not me. One thing I have against you, see, here's the thing about it is that Jesus is fair. Do you believe that about Jesus? Do you believe God is just? Absolutely. He's more just than any court system or court process human being could ever come up with. And you know, the cool thing about God is he'll never hold you accountable for something he hasn't told you. Because he's just. This wasn't revelation for the church in Ephesus. This isn't something they'd never heard Jesus said before. The reason I know this is because it's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew elsewhere. And how many of you know that the apostles, how they differentiated between the true and the false, were the apostles that actually had face-to-face experience with Jesus. That had learned from Him directly what the church was supposed to be and how the people of God were supposed to live. And they were rightly dividing between people that were being influenced and teaching from another spirit besides the Holy Spirit. And John being one of those apostles that was actually the one that laid his head on Jesus' chest. John heard the very heartbeat of God during the Last Supper. He's writing these things on Jesus' behalf. How many of you know we can trust John? And Jesus has some interesting things to say. See, revelation is when the Holy Spirit tells you something you've never heard before. Conviction is when he has to tell you twice. So what's happening... In the church in Ephesus is some conviction. Because they've heard this before. Where did they hear it? Well, I propose to you they heard it from the, one of the apostles teaching. Go to Matthew chapter 7 verses 15 through 23. And I'm going to read these passages to you. And in your mind let them connect to the letter that we just read to the church in Ephesus. Jesus says this. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. How the church in Ephesus know that not everybody that got up to teach them, not anybody that had a word from God, was legitimately hearing God? Because Jesus had taught the apostles who had taught them that you need to be aware of people that are false. That's how they knew that. That's how they were doing that. They had no reference point outside the teaching of Christ, just like you and I don't know outside of the teachings of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Everybody okay? Jesus says this, you will recognize them by their fruits. Everybody say fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by your fruits. Now, is Jesus talking about trees or is he talking about people? He's talking about people using trees as a metaphor here. Now, the next passage is the very next one in the list here. You read in order. How many of you believe that verse 21 comes after verse 20? Jesus goes on to say this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Man. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
on that day, when? The day we stand face to face before Jesus. Jesus was writing a letter to the church in Ephesus to correct them on some things before they had to stand before him face to face. On that day, what day? When we stand before Jesus face to face, you will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then I, Jesus, will declare, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And this used to be the scariest part of the Bible to me. I can remember in my reading that I would purposefully get to this part and I would skip over it. Because it made me uncomfortable. Anybody ever been there before? I don't understand it. It makes me uncomfortable to read it. Let me just tell myself, it's not about rules. It's about relationship. I'm, never per- I'm not going to be perfect. Jesus came so I don't have to be. Everything's okay. Keep on trucking. Grace, 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 grace. Right? Jesus said... Depart from me, I never knew you. And what troubled me about that for a long time was because I thought, man, if I ever get to the place that I can cast devils out of people, if I ever get to the place that I legitimately prophesy, I'm speaking what I'm hearing God say in my spirit out and it's connecting and confirming with people, if I ever get to the place that I'm doing mighty miracle works in Jesus' name, I don't know what that looks like, but I know a guy that's doing that has got to have a tight relationship with Jesus. There's no way you could do those things and not have, like, the best relationship with Jesus ever. It's got to be the most healthy thing on the planet. If you're going around doing the things that Jesus did, you've got to be, like, one with Jesus. But the Scripture gives a little bit of a different picture, doesn't it? Because something happens whenever we allow ourselves to think through the mindset that we have to go get this external resource besides God to fix what's broken in us. We've got to create this resume for God of all the good things that we're doing. Something happens in that type of a mindset that looks like an Ephesian church and what it looks like is a group of people that when they stand face to face before Jesus, their first response is to submit a resume instead of fall down on their face and worship. Because the people that stand before Jesus in that day and immediately go to the things that they've done That didn't happen by mistake. They practiced their whole life that way. And the way you practice your life, the way you live your life right now will be what you ultimately do when you stand face to face before him. So we've got this two groups of people in the church world today. We've got one group that says, I don't have to do anything because grace has covered it. And then we've got this other group that says, I've got to do all of this so that God will be happy with me. And where do we find in the middle of all this? Well, we find in the middle of all this where we find him every single time. And who we find is Jesus and what we find is truth. What we find is wisdom. What we find is health. What we find is balance. What we find is the Holy Spirit revelation that we're all seeking. It's a dangerous place to live our life in such a way that when we stand before Jesus, we don't know how to worship. So we give Him a list of our works. It's a dangerous place to be. And Jesus is picking this up from the Ephesians. He said, you're doing a lot of good things. And I commend you on them. But this thing I have against you. You've abandoned your first love. Go back to the beginning and do the works that you were doing when you first got connected to me. There's a key thing that Jesus reveals here. It's kind of interesting, just fun for study. But in verse 15 through 20, in the context of the false prophets and the trees, Jesus exclusively uses the term fruit. And then in verses 21 through 23... Is the first time in that 
in that passage that Jesus uses the word works to talk about what these people were doing that were dead, empty works. And I think Jesus is trying to stress a point. And notice that when Jesus is talking about trees, he says that the tree is going to produce something, not nothing. It's either going to be good fruit or bad fruit. In our lives, oftentimes, we can have things that resemble what God wills in our life. We can have things that are coming off of our life that look like the fruit we're supposed to have. But like I said, we don't know it's not the real deal until we bite into it. See, there's fruit that gets produced illegitimately the way things are produced today. Anybody, uh, well, I can tell you this. We, I, I'm somebody that really likes food, okay? And we affectionately call people like that chubby, but also foodies, okay? Foodies. I'm a foodie. I love food. I love ex- trying different types of food. I like going places and having things I've never had before. And man, I like food so much, I even watch TV about food sometimes and different documentaries. And I was watching this documentary. I was talking about this guy that opened up a restaurant in Charleston. And, and he's tapped into these seeds that have been preserved of this particular type of Carolina rice that was only grown during the 1800s. And it's not in widespread production anymore. And he's been finding seeds and ways of doing agriculture that were from back then and reintroducing them through the ingredients in his restaurant. And people are just going nuts because this stuff doesn't taste like anything else that's in common circulation right now. Those of you that grow your own fruits and vegetables, you know what I'm talking about. I had a guy give me a zucchini the other day. It was as big as a watermelon. I've never seen a zucchini like that at Walmart. I go to Walmart, they're all the exact same size. And when you pick them up, they're feel like wax. So you got this stuff on it. You know what I'm talking about? You pick zucchini out of the garden, it doesn't feel that way. It's like they spray it with the same stuff they make yoga mats out of. It's weird. It's not good. And for those of you that know beef, there's a difference in the way beef tastes based upon what you're feeding it. You can tell a difference. The organic thing. Organic's better, they say, because it tastes better. It's fresher. And organic actually expires the way things are supposed to expire. You know, you have, have a zucchini that lasts for, you know, uh, uh, three months. There's something up with that zucchini. It looks like a zucchini should look. All right. But then the more that you examine it, it's not there. Jesus had seen this fruit coming off the church in Ephesus, and he decided to sample a piece. And when he bit into it, he said, it's missing something. We produce things. See, the world is caught up in production and productivity. And the church is not supposed to be caught up in the same thing. See, we mass produce things that are cookie cutter, that are taking the nutrients out of things, that are they're taking the flavors out of things, and we do it so that we can have a lot of it. And if we're not careful, we get into the same mentality with God. It doesn't really matter if I'm legitimately connected to God anymore as long as I'm just doing the stuff I'm supposed to do. Welcome to religion. Welcome to ritual. I'm mass producing the things I think I'm supposed to. And as long as I've got fruit that looks like everybody else's, I'll be okay. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I actually have to sample it. Because Jesus can tell a difference in the taste. Jesus can tell if it was produced out of manipulation, condemnation, forceful self-help. Or if it was produced out of a seed that was deposited in your life through being intimate with the Lord. He can tell the difference between those two things. It's why we see the slant in the culture that we see. People are trying to grow things in laboratories that aren't supposed to be grown in laboratories. People are trying to figure out a way to grow human beings in petri dishes instead of the way that God intended, which is two people making love and conceiving fruit that now is supposed to have a beneficial and lasting impact on the world. 
How many of you know that I've got cute kids? I do. I do. You know why? Because I don't make ugly ones. They're all cute. And here's the thing. You see my kids and you'll say, oh, so cute. But can I be honest with you? You wouldn't have that response if you saw the way that those kids are made. Because you're not supposed to see that. Are you following me? There's something that happened in secret between my wife and I that bore kids that now the world gets to experience. And it was legitimate. It was her seed and my seed. I didn't bring anybody else into the marriage to get that done. It was us. We did that together. Are you understanding me? There's things that God wills to birth through your life that are only supposed to be conceived in a secret place with him. And what happens is, is that we try to be productive. And when we try to be productive, we get deceived because God never called you to be productive. He called you to be fruitful. And the only way I know to bear fruit is to first be intimate with the Lord. People are trying to bear fruit for God constantly. And they're trying to do it like having a kid without having sex with your spouse. Doesn't work. Are you following me? You can't produce fruit that's lasting, that's good, that's legitimate if you're not intimate with Jesus. That's what was happening in Ephesus. That's what was happening with the Ephesians. Look, I see all this fruit that you're doing, but the taste is off because you've memorized, you've memorized formulas. You're allowing your heart to be moved by con- condemnation, not compassion. You're keeping up appearances. You're doing things because you think you got to instead of wanting to. And the fruit doesn't taste the same as it did at first. Anybody remember when they first got saved? First got filled with the Holy Ghost, whatever it was, whatever turning point, whatever point in your life that people started calling you weird, that's what I want you to remember right now. You remember going back around certain groups of people and you had nothing to talk about because everything had changed. You remember tasting how good God was that you just automatically started losing an appetite for sin? You remember actually experiencing peace and rest. And do you remember, man, there wasn't enough stuff for you to sign up to do at the church. It's like, you want me to go out in the parking lot and just scrub rocks with a toothpick? I'll do it. I don't know why you're having me do it, but praise God, it's going to be worship to Jesus. Everybody you went, you were looking for an opportunity. Man, some way, shape, or form, I got to be able to tell them about Jesus. I got to tell my family about this. I got, I got to know. Right after I got filled with the Holy Ghost, man, the first thing I did was tell all my family, man, you've got to get filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the greatest thing in the world. Do you know God still heals today? you know God still show up in your life today? I was excited. And there was no, like, begrudging thing for me to want to help somebody. Was, I had so much love in my heart, I just instinctively wanted to do it. Because it was there. Because it was what God's doing. What happened? What happened to us? Simple. Life happened. You found out that hypocrites come to church, not just Walmart. You found out that people that say they love God and love you really don't. You got hurt. You got hurt. It got to be routine. And the Lord's speaking out a word to us today of, let's shelve the productivity for a minute. Let's put up all the things you think you're supposed to be doing. Let's put up all the ways that you're supposed to be parenting, that you're supposed to be abounding in work. Let's put aside loving your enemies. Let's put aside taking up your cross. Let's put aside all of this, and let's you and I reconnect for a moment. Can I be honest with you? The only way 
for you to be able to release the work that God desires is for you to first make a commitment to give Him access to work in here. What God wants you to do will not come from you on your own. The same way that Serena could not conceive our children without me. We're the bride of Christ, aren't we? Husbands, let me ask you a question. Has your wife ever been like working in the yard or just got back from the gym or whatever and, you know, they're, say, you know, they come back a little dirty, sweaty, whatever, and you've got it really on your heart to know your wife? You understand what I'm saying? It's the same thing that Jesus said in Matthew 7. It said this in verse 23. Then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. That word know there is the same word in Genesis when it says that Adam knew his wife and she conceived a son. I'm talking spiritual now, so put on your spiritual cap for a second. You should have it on all the time, but a lot of us don't. But put your spiritual hat on for a minute. You know, marriage isn't even about your marriage. Paul says that marriage is a great mystery that represents Christ and the church. Sex isn't even about sex. It's a type and a shadow of something else. It's a temporary picture of something that's going on in the spirit that drives us back to what relationship with God is supposed to be. So once again, men, working in the yard, came back from the gym, and you just got on your heart to know your wife. How many of you have heard this before? No, because I have to clean myself. Men, have you ever been deterred from wanting to know your wife because she was sweaty? Anybody else? Has that deterred you? No, you don't care. doesn't matter to you. Listen, are we the bride of Christ or not? So many Christians I talk to won't allow themselves to connect with God in a secret place of prayer, of authenticity, of time just between the two of them because they feel like they have to get themselves cleaned up. God's like, no, just let me love you. Let me deposit the seed of my word into the womb of your heart. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. The only way for you to change is for me to put what's in me in you. That's the only way for it to change. You're not going to be able to change apart from me. You're not going to be able to conceive the fruit that I will for you to produce and let you, unless you let me make love in your heart. Release the seed of my word into your heart unless you let me love you. Now, this goes over the top of most people's heads and it's like, man, he's talking about something weird. No, quit being carnal. Get saved, get filled with the Spirit, and then you'll understand what I'm trying to tell you. Praise God. We can help you do all those things right here at Victory Life Church. One-stop shop. (laughs) They're types and shadows. They're representations. I'm not talking about some weird new age thing that you're doing something weird in the spirit realm. No, I'm talking about God set up things in this creation. Romans chapter 1. Those that don't believe in God are without excuse because God's eternal power and His divine image have been made clear in the things that He has made. How many of you know He's made you and I? He's made the way that we're supposed to connect in a relationship. He's made the way that plants cross-pollinate with each other. He's made the, the parts in the plants that are male and female. He's pointed all this back to teach us as the bride, we're supposed to be connecting with Him if we want to see fruit, if we want to see children of faith released through our life. And we can't get there by illegitimate means. The only way for fruit to abound in your life is for you to be intimate with the Lord. It's the only way. doesn't come any other way. God's not looking for productivity, church. He's looking for fruitfulness. Machines can be productive. Only living things can bear fruit. 
God's called your relationship with him to be a living one, a passionate one, a vibrant one. God wants to know you. And he wants you to know him in return. John 15. I'm going to read around. You can read this in your own time. It's verses 1 through 11. But I'm going to skip around a little bit to drive this point home. Verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Listen to this. All your performance-based, self-centered thoughts in your head. Watch Jesus just destroy them with one sentence. Listen to this. Every branch in me. How many of you believe that you're in Christ? Raise your hand. That does not bear fruit, takes it away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it might bear more fruit. Notice that whole sentence that said nothing about you. Said everything about him working in you. Your job is to surrender. There's a part of your life that's not in alignment with his commands. There's a part of your parenting that's off base. There's a part of your marriage that needs to be corrected. Let me tell you very plainly, whatever area of my life I'm not fulfilling what God would have of me is the area of my life that I need him to love me well in. I don't need motivation. I don't need productivity. I don't need self-will. I need selfless surrender to his goodness. And I need to connect with him in prayer. I need to connect with him in worship. Let me tell you this. I've had more intimate moments with Jesus in my car than I've ever had in a worship service ever. I've had more powerful experiences, true times when God has impressed his glory and his goodness on me in my bathroom than I've ever had ministering to somebody in a prayer line. Ever. Ever. When I stand before Jesus, I'm not going to pull the resume. I should be flat on my face, bawling and snotting everywhere because he's finally here. I long for you, Lord. I've longed to be able to see you face to face. There's no separation between us now. It was hard in this life. There was days I had to put my attitude in check. There was days I had to kick the dog, slap the kid. It was a tough life. (laughs) Hard things were happening. So many things tried to come between me and you. But now, Jesus, we're together. What would happen if a church had that cry from their heart? Instead of looking to a resume, I think it'd be a church that's connected to its first love. I didn't get into this because of any of you. I got into this because of him. And I don't stay in this because of you. I stay in this, what he's called me to do, because of his love for you in me. That's first love. Jesus said in verse 4, abide in me. He didn't say strive to please me. He didn't say put the resume together. He didn't say let yourself be condemned to the point that you finally surrender. He said abide in me as you are. With your hang ups, with your messes, with your sweat, what you think is disgusting. Abide in me. And I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me. So I have loved you. Abide in my love. Ephesian church. Move toward. Being productive. And Jesus said. I need you to move toward my presence. 
I need you to move toward keeping company with me. It's impossible to not get close to him in a place of intimacy and not have who he is rub off on you. And what the world needs is more of him, not more of you. See, there's a myth in the culture today. It's the myth of me time. You've heard it. You've said it. It's been a tough week. I need some me time. Let me tell you the truth. You don't need more you time. You're the problem. You don't need to hang out more with yourself. You need him time. You don't need me time. You need time with him. When's the last time you're in the secret place? For some of you, it's been a while. For some of you, it was this morning. For some of you, you've never been. You have no idea what I'm talking about. You mean it's not just about the rules? It's not just about making sure that I'm giving money to the church and listening to the message and taking notes? It's part of that. But see, it's about God having your heart. And the only way to have your heart is if you let him. If you let him love you. Whatever area you're falling short in, is not an area that you need to crank up the machine to release some more Christ-like productivity? It's an area where you need to be more surrendered to the presence. It's an area where you need to make time every day to connect with him in secret. Anything I'm speaking out before you today is the fruit of something I've conceived in private with him. If you want to have future kingdom potential, you have to have personal history with God. Or you won't have any future kingdom potential. Personal history with God. The times you've been honest. God, I feel like a failure. I don't even want to be in your presence. I've tripped. I've fallen. But I know I don't need to withdraw. I need to allow myself to lean in closer. See, abiding isn't visiting. Abiding in God's love and abiding in the vine isn't about a visitation. It's about a habitation. It's not a spontaneous experience. Abiding is deliberate. It's intentional. It's necessary. And it's stubborn. I'm making a choice to abide in God's love. I'm making a choice to be in that secret place with the Lord. See, condemnation, manipulation, those things will get you to be effective once, twice. But it'll always be moments. Love, God's love, received in your life is the only thing that can empower you to live a lifetime of faithfulness. See, as a church... It's easy for people in the church to get caught up on having faith-filled moments that they can write down on their resume for God. But last time I read the Bible, Jesus, when you stand face-to-face before him, and what we all long to hear is, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Not faith-filled servant, faithful. The same way in marriage, it's love for each other that empowers you over a lifetime to remain faithful, to only be intimate with each other, to only give that part of yourself to each other. Such it is in your marriage covenant with Jesus. It's not about having faith in a moment, something you can put down on your resume. It's not about having something that you can put as a notch on your spiritual belt. It's about, did you live a life of allowing God to know you and you allowing yourself to know Him each and every day? And if you live that kind of life, you'll have more fruit than you know what to do with. You have so much, you just start giving it away. 
How do you love your enemies? By letting him love you well. How do you deny yourself and take up your cross? By loving him more than you love you. How does that happen? Intimacy. Church can put a program together. Church can get any system rolling to garner some participation. But a community doesn't see results until people have allowed themselves to stop their production and get alone in his presence. And then what's released in a community really could be heaven on earth. How do you love your enemies? You get so full of God's love that that's all you got left to give. Practical pieces in ways, you know, you might say, man, pastor, I'm going to close with this. How do, how do I begin? Some of you have never started a, a rhythm of just intimacy with God, having a secret place that you go to to connect with him. Some of you are condemned because you've tried. You say, man, every time I read the Bible, I just can't remember anything that I read. I've got alone. I've opened the word. And how many of you know the scripture is just made to put you in touch with the author? It's not an end in and of itself. The whole point of getting in the scripture is that you actually start connecting with his manifest presence. The whole point of prayer isn't so that you just can mark it off your religious duties. It's actually so that you can start keeping company with the Holy Spirit in a real and vibrant way. The method is not the whole point. The method is just to make you get in touch with Him. People get condemned. They say, Pastor, I've tried to read my Bible and I just can't retain. I can't remember any of it. I love what I heard a pastor say one one time I was listening to. He said, do you remember what you had for breakfast seven days ago? No, but it still fed you. Same is true with God's word. You might remember, might not be able to remember what you read, but it's still feeding you. He also said people be condemned about falling asleep when they're praying. Like at the end of the day, I just want to cast my cares on the Lord and I want to pray for a little bit before bed and I always fall asleep and I feel so condemned. And the pastor said this. He said, when I was a father and my, my kids were, when, as a dad when my kids were little, They'd crawl up in my arms before bed and they'd want to talk and they'd want to me tickle them and play and eventually they'd fall asleep. He said, I never got offended because my kids would fall asleep in my arms. Father's not offended because you fall asleep in his. The whole point is connection. It's connection. If you're in the neighborhood and you want to be a part, this Wednesday at 6.30 I'm having... My right-hand guy here at the campus, Pastor Randy Mayfield, is going to bring a message. And I've asked him specifically to bring a message on a method that I've been seeing so much fruit in in regards to our life groups and people personally connecting with God. It's a method called SOAP. And I don't want to go into too much detail on what all that is and what that means, but I've asked him to bring a message. I believe in it so much that I asked him to bring a message this Wednesday. It's just a practical tool on a way for you to begin to connect with God through the scriptures and through prayer that I believe will be a blessing to you. If you're in the neighborhood and you'd like to come and receive some instruction on that. But there's a lot of resources that we have available at this church. We've got an app and podcast with awesome Bible teaching for you to connect with in your private time. We've got our worship teams produce an album for you to worship like you do on Sundays in your car while you're driving or at home in your room. We've got prayer guides. It'll start giving you language for prayer. You can go to Next Steps and connect with one of those prayer guides. We'll give it to you and let you begin to start developing language for how to connect with God in prayer. You know, there's apps we've got today with the Scripture, the Bible app. You've got reading plans. There's all ways, different types and forms for you to start connecting with God's presence in a real way. And my encouragement for you today would be not to look at the things that you're not measuring up in, 
but to return to your first love. To connect with the person that is the point, who it's all about, Jesus. Let him love you well. And from that now, I guarantee the result will be his love being released well through your life. Did you get anything from the Lord today? Awesome. Ministry teams, if you'd come, ministry teams, come and just go and bow our heads and close our eyes. If you're here today, you say, Pastor, I've never made a decision to follow Jesus. I want that life of intimacy that you're talking about. But I've never even done the first step, which is saying, yes, I want an intimate marriage with the Lord, but I've never even said I do to Jesus before. Friend, we don't want an opportunity to pass you by today. If you're here and you'd say, I need to say I do to Jesus, I need to say yes to a relationship with Him. I need to receive that salvation. I need to know that I'm secure in the Lord and I want to build a relationship with God. If that's you and you'd like to do that today, we just want to lead you in a prayer. The Scripture says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that His salvation will come to you and His grace will now come and empower you to live a life of intimacy with Him, a life of fruitfulness. If that's you today and you'd like to do that, I just ask one thing, that you just raise a hand right where you sit. After I see it, you can put it down. just want to see who I'm praying for today. Anybody in the house this morning that would say, I'd like to make a decision to follow Jesus. Love to pray with you this morning. See your hand up here, buddy? I believe that the kids are the most sensitive out of all of us to the Holy Spirit. And parents, if you're with your child, just go over with them and pray with them. They can make a decision to follow Jesus on their own. My daughter's about to be six. She already has, and she's filled with the Holy Spirit already at six years old. It's fine. Jesus loves the kids. Anybody else like to join this precious child today and say yes to Jesus? We just love to pray with you and lead you into relationship with the Lord. Our family, let's pray with the one that's raised his hand today as we step into the kingdom of God together. Let's repeat this after me. Heavenly Father. I come to you today, and I say, I need help. I believe you're the only one that can help me. Jesus, you are who you say you are, and I believe in you. I put my trust in you. Thank you for going to the cross and paying for my sin. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit. And empower me to live a life that serves you well in your name. Everybody said amen. Let's give it up for the Lord. Awesome.